Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ciao Golosi, Danielle here. Just a quick note at the top that this is a recording of our live tasting with wines brought into the United States now from Amunini Vini. You'll find in the show notes a link to be able to purchase these wines to taste along with us or just to enjoy at your leisure, and we hope you will. Please excuse the poverty of the quality of audio. It's a live tasting, and that means that our Voices will not sound as beautiful as usual, but we hope you'll enjoy nonetheless. And with that, welcome to Gola. Thank you. Here we are. I'm Amy Carla, a Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and New York Times bestselling cookbook author. Oh, I love the update. I forgot. We haven't recorded since that was a fact. I'm Danielle Caligari, Assistant Professor of Italian at Dartmouth College, Certified Specialist of Wine, and author of the forthcoming Dante's Gluttons, which is officially off to press uh, next week. So I'll let you guys know when that comes out, and then you can promptly decide not to buy it because it's way too expensive and you don't want to read it. Um, Katie, what are we doing here tonight? We are highlighting some interesting wines, natural wines um, that are imported by our friend John of Amunini Vini, um, a New York-based importer um, that imports Italian, I think exclusively Italian natural wines. Maybe there's some Spain in the mix, I forget, but maybe John, if he's out there, can can school us to the... I think facts, he's only but... Italian for right now, but I mean, I never know where he's off to and, and hopefully more things on the horizon, because one of the things that we love about what John brings in is not just that it's from Italy and producers, we, uh, many of whom we personally know and love or have been uh, delighted to meet through John, but also uh, because they represent the kinds of wine production and the styles of wine that we are very interested in. John is, uh, as I expected, horrified by the very suggestion of the Iberian Peninsula. But in any case, we are um, focusing on just a couple of producers tonight while we have the chance to drink with you all. And uh, our plan is to keep doing this uh, and have John join us in the future and to do some more on the road activity uh, with him and these producers as well, because we love the coverage of the peninsula that we get. We love the kind of people we're meeting and what they're doing. And uh, we love the wine, as you can see, I'm already digging in. So we're in the province of Verona here with La Prerada. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the winemaker is relatively young, works with indigenous grapes. And this grape in particular is my favorite to say. And if you're at home and you want to join me in the pronunciation, please, I invite you to. Garganiga. I do. Garganiga. <laughs> You know, speaking of um, of Spain, I I remember that was a one of the words that when I thought myself to be both um, quite a fluent Italian speaker and a particularly um, 
uh, acute uh, uh, attention, having a having a particularly acute attention towards Italian wine and uh, the words that are referred to it, I once ordered a glass of Garganega and had the bar laugh at me and say, oh, you must be from Spain, which was also obviously an insult, although I <laughs> didn't quite understand it <laughs> until later. Um, Garganega is uh, a group that some people are probably familiar with because Suave is a relatively well-known Italian white from this uh, very esteemed wine region. The Veneto makes all kinds of excellent wine. Amarone brought it quite a bit of fame um, over history. More recently, it has become known uh, significantly more for the Prosecco that is produced in, in the area. Um, but there are lots of people doing really interesting things a little bit uh, off map or off radar, including uh, the producer here at La Preada, um, I first encountered these wines at Vineria Sonora in Florence uh, and loved them immediately. And I was very excited to see that uh, John had made a relationship with that, with the producer and bringing it in. Um, Katie, since you're hanging in the Veneto right now, what's up there? What are you thinking about when you're drinking wines up there? What uh, makes it special or different from anywhere else? By the way, your well, Southern bias is about to get called into question publicly for the first time, I think. So I just need everyone to know that Naples and Venice have a lot in common, actually. And while the patina of Venice might seem elegant, it's actually like a really gritty place full of mobsters. So I, I treasure it and it feels very Southern to me. Um, you know, in the Veneto, people drink a lot and there are different occasions for different types of drinks. A low alcohol by volume drink really is within the realm. So this is something that you might crack open with some friends, standing up at a counter, eating some fried meatballs or some maybe some sweet and sour sardines, something that's like very light, very um, acidic and tart that matches the acidity and tartness of this wine. Um, and you would leave it behind when you went to dinner. This is something that opens the stomach, gets you ready for, uh, for your meal. Um, what do you want to be eating and drinking with this? And where do you want to be doing that? Uh, well, I'll tell you one thing. I'd swap you in a heartbeat right now. Um, <laughs> but if you have to be somewhere, um, Hanover, New Hampshire is uh, beautiful and charming and a place where people like to drink because it's dark and cold. So um, with that in mind, um, as you uh, point out, Katie, uh, it's a wine that is perfect to start with because it drinks as well as an aperitif. So I can, you know, uh, be putting it down right now. You can see that I'm going through it pretty quickly and it's coming in at 11.5. So it's super light. It's very drinkable in terms of the alcohol content well, as well. Um, it's, as you were saying, sardin sabor uh, and uh, the other kinds of traditional chiquetti that Venetians have, which are the little snacks that they have at a baccaro or uh, a bar that's basically a kind of um, equivalent of the standard Italian cafe, but for savory snacks and alcoholic drinks. Um, the uh, little fried things 
or anything with that sweet and sour component that brings in, that reminds you of the long history of, of uh, exchange and kind of cultural fluidity in a place like Venice that does indeed make it a lot like Naples or Genova um, is, uh, is very apparent here. And I can easily imagine enjoying something that maybe has some raisins scattered on it, maybe some onions that uh, got uh, soaked in vinegar before and uh, that bring out some of the uh, light stone fruit flavors that are here, um, a little bit of the brininess and savoriness that's on the back of that and uh, that uh, enjoy the acid that the springs right at the top. So, um, all of it's great, but honestly, it's, it's fantastic on its own as well. So Rick asked us a question that I think is applicable to all the wines that are uh, going to be uh, following in this wonderful parade. What is natural wine? Um, it's, a, it's a phrase that is defined differently depending on who you're speaking to. You know, why is this wine natural? Um, there is zero chemical intervention or synthetic pesticides in the vineyard. Um, there is no sulfur added in the cantina or at bottling, or if there is, it's, ah, there's a tiny, tiny bit of sulfur added at bottling, but next to nothing. Um, only indigenous yeast is used. This is a, a handmade wine from the manual harvest to the light pressing. Um, and just think of natural wine as like nothing added, nothing taken away. It's grapes and like the natural yeast fermentation happens and, and it's bottled. That's a little bit simplistic, but um, in most uh, wine production, which qualifies as conventional wine production, production, there is a lot of stuff added and often stuff taken away to manipulate the wine in either a chemical way or sometimes just in, in a, a, a dilution way that changes the wine in some way, usually to, to satisfy some market demand. Great summary as usual, Katie. Um, I would uh, build on that by saying one of the reasons that we've been excited to start working directly with the people who import the wines to the US or the greater world outside of Italy is because by talking to them and uh, I'm going through the process with them directly, we are also made aware of things that, and you know, I think we both consider ourselves to be pretty um, careful and, and engaged with all parts of the process. But nonetheless, without talking to someone who's doing the work all the time, we're not always attuned to every single challenge that there is. And right now we're facing a lot of challenges on top of the ones that already existed. So speaking of things like sulfur and additives that go beyond the naturally occurring sulfur, which all wines have in some, to some quantity, is uh, these are questions that come up because of the ability to preserve wine is a challenge and it becomes more of a challenge as you have to make the wine travel. And even more so than if you can't control the time of travel and the space that it's held in. I know that over the last few days, I have had a bunch of wines not make it to me because it was too cold here, for example. Now, that was lucky because the people I talk to and the wines that I get are coming from people who make that decision and, and you know, write to me directly and say, hey, listen, your wine's not going to ship this week because we don't want to send it while it's negative uh, 11 degrees Fahrenheit, as it literally was one morning 
last week here. Yeah, not great. Um, what happens if my wine travels in that? It could it could actually freeze during the process of being shipped to me. And then by the time it gets to me, it is uh, out of the shape that the producer wanted it to be. Who knows? There are a series of things that could happen. In any case, it's not what it was meant to look like. And um, the uh, that's just a question of the literal process of putting it on a truck and getting it to me, for example, forget about all the other things that happen along the way. So we're trying to be conscious of that and understand that and then think about how what the wine uh, started as and what it gets to us as uh, represents and the space in between. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, it's kind of an amazing thing that you guys now, anyone who has the six pack gets to confrontare mm -hmm. Sergio Drago's Caterato with Sergio Drago's uh, Macerato, which is also Caterato. Caterato is the grape. Um, and in the case of the Macerato, it, uh, the skins stay in contact with the juice for eight days. Um, and so if you have a couple glasses, you might want to pour them side by side so you can compare and see how the uh, grape expresses itself um, under different treatments. So Sergio Drago is from a place that is near and dear to our hearts, Alcamol in yeah, the northwestern, go for it, <laughs> um, in the northwestern part of, uh, of Sicily, like think like Palermo, Marsala area. Um, he started making wine in earnest, producing just 1,500 bottles several years ago. Now he makes a few thousand bottles of the Caterato. Um, so still not a huge production, but clearly growing. Um, he comes from a, a wine background. And I'm curious about, actually, since we have John here, can you tell us a little bit about the labels? Just drop a little, drop a little note in the chat. Um, the labels are these like very cute hand-drawn illustrations. Beautiful. All right, yeah, de definitely different color. I don't need a, I didn't need to get a SOM certificate to tell you that, but <laughs> you know, yeah. they're different colors. <laughs> uh, I see uh, while we're at it that um, while we're listening to John, what type of glasses might go to from Charlie. Um, I'm a Zalto girl from way back. Uh, I think that the uh, Zalto Universal is the best glass that you can get for the money on the market right now. Um, it is uh, feels like there's almost nothing in your hand, but they're incredibly durable. I have both of these glasses that I have right now. I'm seeing that one has a little scratch, but I didn't polish one. I polished this one. Um, I have had the ones that I'm holding in my hands right now for more than two years, for sure. Um, and they've traveled with me. And sometimes I, I mean, I'll throw them in a bag with a bottle of wine and, uh, you know, I, I try to be careful with them. They don't go in the dishwasher, but uh, they they work great. They're not cheap. Uh, I think it's $55 a glass. So it's an investment. But, uh, you know, if you're the only one in your house who cares, one glass will take you a long way. So, so I bought what used to be my favorite glasses, the Gabriel Glass Standard, because they're mm -hmm. like very affordable, but like nice, decent Austrian glass. And I... I uh, immediately broke one. Like I touched it. I looked at it too intensely and it shattered. So it's no longer my favorite <laughs> glass. It's going to start flushing 22 euros in the toilet. Every time I want to buy a glass for myself, um, more often than not, like 
especially these days when I'm drinking just like a simple crushable wine while cooking dinner. I'm not trying to break a glass because I'm very accident prone. I actually use um, a goto, which is like the Venetian glass blower cup. <laughs> so everyone's is color coded. So then you don't like lose track of which wine is yours. And that's really important in a, a pandemic scenario. Um, so definitely not in line with the sort of technical specs of Azalto. Um, but you know, fun to drink if you're not drinking anything too serious. Oh, absolutely. And to be clear, I, um, I, well, I don't know. I am like, I, I kind of really like a nice glass. So, uh, even when I'm just, doing something, you, have nice I, <laughs> you know, I was going to get, my plan was to send you a, a Zalta setup, but first of all, I, uh, I figured you would say I'm going to break them. And second of all, then you started dating a glass blower that felt kind of redundant. <laughs> I felt like a weird, I felt like a weird flex at that point. So I, I stepped back. Um, uh, so I'm drinking the Caterato Impurezza versus the Caterato Impurezza Macerato. And I am, uh, I'm first of all loving them because against the Garganica that we just drank, it's like uh, the, the perfume of Caterato is incredible. It's like, I, I don't even want to make this comparison because it's cruel and unusual to these otherwise wonderful grapes, but it's the difference of having like a really insipid Pinot Grigio versus like a California Chardonnay coming up because it's like, whoa, this grape is wildly different. There's so much going on. Um, floral, um, dense, beautiful. And then we come to the, the maceration where you start to get some of that iron rich, uh, almost uh, cold penny iced tea on the top. And then all the depth of that fruit that I know is in here, but isn't quite as apparent until it spends some time enjoying uh, the uh, backbone that the tannin gives it off of the maceration. Did you know that Garganaga and Cateratto are genetically related? I, now that you say that, I remember having known that at one point, but I would not have been able to produce that knowledge myself until now. They express well, themselves so, so differently though. I think it's it's interesting though to like have one after the other and see a, a Veneto Garganiga and it's, I don't know if cousin's the right an, uh, analogy, but um, to have that Sicilian Cateratto from the Northwestern part of, yeah. of Sicily and see how that kind of behaves. One thing I will say, if anybody has them against each other, this is a great experiment in understanding what tannin does to your mouth, because the catarato by itself is, <laughs> Katie's enjoying it. <laughs> Make sure you get a good one. Um, the catarato by itself, okay, let's look at we do everybody here knows how to taste, but I'll just say it just in case. So, you know, leave it still before I'm moving it around now, but remember a good sniff before you do anything to the glass, then give it a nice swirl, move your wrist like you're stirring the Sunday sauce. Another nice sniff, get more out of it. Now pull it into your mouth with some oxygen. Okay. I got, um, 
And the Catarato is is really very beautiful. It has um, it has great balance. The the acid is softer compared to what we just had before. Um, now we come into the uh, macerated uh, Catarato. As soon as this comes into my mouth, well, first of all. If you blind this, at least you know right away that you're doing something that's gotten some skin contact because you're going to smell that uh, that change in the density of fruit. But the other thing is once it gets into your mouth, you're going to feel all of the saliva sucked off your tongue by the tannins. And it's perfect next to each other because they have essentially the same notes. This one just a little bit deeper, but that tannin is impossible to ignore after you have it here without it. Um, I love this. This is fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Katie, uh, while we're in Sicily, uh, let's just um, take a moment to remind everybody what's going on there versus uh, versus the Veneto. Um, you've been spending a bunch of time in Venice now. You and I have both spent in the past, I've, I've lived in Venice. Um, you and I have both spent in the past a lot of time in Sicily. We spent an extra lot of time in Sicily this summer, got to go around tasting a lot of wine together. And uh, one of the things that we we're talking about while we were there is how hard it is to talk about Sicilian wine in comparison to, um, you know, peninsular wine, because Sicily is uh, unto itself a world, basically. And uh, looking at Sergio's wines, right, we spent our, our time together this, this summer in particular in the northeast, in the northeast corner, rather, of, uh, of the island. Uh, where Etna dominates in all senses of the word. Um, uh, Sergio Drago's wines are coming from a, the uh, an opposite side of the island and uh, are radically different as a result. So talking about Sicilian wines becomes actually kind of misleading because uh, you, and I think you were pointing to that before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're thinking about the, the wines of Western Sicily and, and Northwestern Sicily, we're thinking Nino Barocco, we're thinking briny wines we're talking about the viola brothers it's a, a constellation unfortunately i'm just naming all dudes are there any lady winemakers up in this piece or what i was um, about it in the i don't know in the way maybe john knows some um but the uh i i don't in uh in western sicily but i'm less good on them in general yeah, I, I know the eastern coast and, and vittoria much better in terms of personal relationships yeah no, and I'm glad that you brought, I'm glad that you brought up like Victoria in that area, because whenever I'm hired to do like Sicilian wine tastings, you got to break it down by subregion, right? You're talking the Northwest and West. If you want to do like aromatic things, Pantelleria, um, definitely uh, Vittoria and the area around Noto and Ragusa. And then you head up, up to the whole universe that is Mount Etna. And that's just, those are just the greatest hits. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's yeah. a lot more going yeah. on. Yeah. And not just thanks to a millennial history of winemaking, because that isn't necessarily unique to Italy. I mean, Italy isn't even one of the most ancient places wine was made. You know, what it really is indebted to is this commercial entrepreneurial spirit that Sicilians have demonstrated 
and the international exchange also that's been part of that and lots of foreigners setting up businesses and influencing um, consumer demands and and exporting and and it's you know it's a, it's a fascinating uh, place and and for sure I want to go back with you soon. Yeah, I know. Well, now, you know, right now I've been in a particularly Rome sick place. So I'm uh, busy planning all kinds of travel. And uh, I have to say, I, I redo the trip that we did this summer a dozen more times before I felt like I had even scratched the surface of the, the, the kind of spinal cord that we drew down from Rome through Calabria and into the um, northeast coast of Sicily. And, uh, you know, to your point, right, Etna by itself is a universe. I mean, you could, you could spend weeks exploring the terroir there, talking to winemakers who have themselves changed the way that they make wine and moved around properties uh, a great deal just over the last couple of decades. Climate change is affecting that that area a ton, and that's right. Barely, you know, we're not even talking about all the other places, uh, and and the vast uh, world of the Aeolian and uh, other archipelagos that then join Sicily as a sort of greater uh, landscape. So um, there's so much happening. What's great about having these two uh, expressions of Caterato next to each other is that even if it's just two in uh, 2000 iterations that we might talk about, we see a lot of the things that we would see repeated elsewhere, which is to say a really straightforward, direct expression of the grape where you can actually identify things about how it was made, why it was made that way. And you can see why it's enjoyable, I think. I hope uh, enough people have this in front of them or will have it in front of them because what I love about all the wines that we're drinking tonight is that I don't, I wouldn't call any of them challenging. Uh, okay. I, uh, I drink them all with great pleasure. And they're at the same time, super interesting and very untouched. So I, you know, and I think people who drink with us, other have in the past drank with us and, and drink with us regularly know that um, we're willing to go to a place where the wine isn't necessarily a pleasure the whole time. We're willing to be there for the curiosity, for the for the strangeness, for the intrigue, um, and to to support people who are experimenting and finding out what can happen in the vineyard. Um, but these are all actually really sophisticated expressions that drink beautifully. And I don't think you have to ask a lot of your audience for them. You can open this with a mixed crowd of people who are used to drinking really conventional wines. And I think they'll enjoy them. Certainly this Caterato, there's, there could be no complaint about it. There's, there's not even a, a kind of old school qualifying fault. So the next three wines are red wines, but Two of them are just called Vino Rosso. So how do you figure out which one you're going to drink first? Um, so here you go. I'm confusing my bottles already. Um, so, well, one thing is going to help me to eliminate one contender, which is that Payamas did not join us this evening. Um, I assume it's because Katie sabotaged my wine shipment and said, oh, it's Tuscan wine? No, my friend shall not have that. She shall not enjoy the pleasures that Tuscany can produce. Um, it's a wine that I drink with great pleasure nonetheless, and we'll talk about uh, what um, uh, will be available to the people who are either already drinking it or um, 
will be drinking it when it arrives uh, to their home. Uh, that is the wine of uh, Manuel Puccini. Uh, but uh, given what I have in front of me, I have La Preara. As you can see, I may or may not have had a little sip last night. Um, and then uh, Sergio's Rosso. Um, it, this is uh, a little bit harder to see because, of course, um, we're working with dark glass versus clear glass. Uh, La Preara, right, let me uh, go ahead and pour a little of Sergio's in here so you can see. Um, much darker, uh, unsurprisingly, because uh, we're working with uh, not just different expressions, different territories, but uh, di very different grapes that are going to be um, uh, going to perform differently and going to extract very differently, get that density of color. Um, and this is Nero Davila and Syrah. Yes, thank you. Sorry, I'm um, saying, uh, things without actually giving the context of it. Uh, I'm gonna finish up uh, also because among other things that I didn't get myself this evening uh, are, uh, was a uh, place to spit my wine. So I guess we're just drinking it. Um, and then um, I am going uh -oh. to, what happened? Hold Wait. Uh oh, she's got to get a charger. Um, <laughs> Only professionals here. <laughs> don't worry, I, I do in the middle of class all the time. So, um, found it. There we go. I also found my keys that I misplaced earlier, so that's cool. Oh, good. Now you'll be able to go home. Um. All right, so we've got our alcohol produced blend of Syrah and Nerodavala. We're clocking in at around 13%. If I'm not mistaken, this was the first wine that Sergio produced. Um, John can and it's, that. it's these 10 days of uh, skin maceration. So that's when the skin stayed with the pulp and everything. Um, and I think what's cool about this wine and what you find in, in a lot of wines from this area is like the brininess of it, like the saltiness of it, which you don't always perceive in, in red wines. It's, I think, a little bit easier to sort of identify in whites, at least for my palate. Uh, but it's really fun that you get this, like the nice fruits and it's braid and aromatic, but it also has that sort of salty, salty note. Absolutely. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm trying to um, put my uh my uh catarato down so that i can pour these next to each other so everyone can see the color difference real fast mm. <laughs> there we go okay so di nuovo um it's not perfect but it's not bad actually for once in my life i have decent lighting and i have an almost white wall behind me so um we see these uh beautiful red wines um and uh katie so I'll, I'll i'll talk more about the actual wines that i have in the glass in one second um what makes the wide spectrum of red wines possible and what about naming should people know because 
I feel like a question I get a lot and there's not an answer to this. I feel like I'm now I'm feeding you a trick question, but I mean, like people ask all the time, like, how do I know that this is a red wine versus a rosé or how do I know what is, you know, what to expect from something as a result of the fact that there's this wide world of wines that are called red and it's like everything possible. Yeah. I mean, well, when it comes to vino rosso, it's pretty explicit, right? Uh, versus vino rosato. And then there's also nomenclature, like denominations in, um, and of course, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, Cerasuolo d'Abruzzo, which looks like a red wine, perhaps um, objectively, but in fact is a, is a rosé. And that is all going to be influenced by traditions of a place, by the intense uh, intensity or scarcity of color compounds in the grape skins, the duration of uh, the skin contact. Did I get the right answer? Sometimes you ask me questions and I get so confused. No, that's exactly, that's exactly what I was trying to say, because I just feel like, um, you know, you're talking about it. And in fact, we have, we have a macerato here. We, I have, I've got three bottles. Of wine. I, I was pulling out wine for tonight and I mistakenly pulled out several bottles before I got to what I was actually supposed to be drinking because of the fact that the ro the rosa or rosato or the rosso or the macerato, right? We're, we're particularly when we're looking at these low intervention wines, a lot there's a lot of possibility on the color spectrum. And there's a question of nomenclature that is ultimately subjective to some extent, right? What, there's a process of making red wine, which traditionally is leaving the juice on the grape skins in order to get the color from the skins and, and stems and seeds and other parts sometimes, depending on how the winemaker decides to, um, to, to macerate, obviously. Um, is, you know, th that's supposed to be red wine and red wine in in our kind of recent history of um, industrial wine and sales has been red wine with deep color, but not every grape naturally produces that even with a lot of time left on, on the skins. So, and we can use an American example here, right? Where Pinot Noir is a grape that is not has naturally low extraction and doesn't have a lot of depth of color but americans have a relationship with red wine where they expect it to have depth of color so people are always trying to basically metaphorically squeeze the shit out of it to get that color and uh and that you know has repercussions on the the ability of the wine to have the delicacy and the subtlety that it's meant to have um, and so here we have two expressions where we're looking at different grapes. So of course, they're going to have different levels of color, but we have two winemakers who are using the same style, more or less, which is to say, letting the grapes do what they're going to do. And if they don't get a lot of color, well, it's still a red wine, and it's going to taste like a red wine, but it might just not be quite as uh, intense as the uh, as the color that comes off of Syrah and Nero Davola, two grapes that that give you a ton of color without a lot of work. I don't know all of the grapes that are in the Ferrero Vino Rosso from near Verona, but definitely like they there's uh, Corvina or Rondinella. Um, anyway, some or all of the grapes that are in Amarone, which is super, super like inky. Um, so 
it's also cool to see ways in which like a similar constellation of grapes can be treated in order to have a completely different impact. Uh, yes, perfect. Thank you, Katie. And um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe John knows the exact blend on the red. Um, I I thought it was Corvina and maybe some Durello and um, uh, we'll, uh, I will tell you. I will tell you that 100%. Okay, perfect. Um, I was going to say, I was just about to say, I will tell you, you can smell the Corvina on it because it has, um, yeah, it may or may not be related. Um, it's, uh, it has, it has uh, the, the dense fruit that you're expecting from here, uh, from, from this area, as you're mentioning, Katie, through the Amarone. Um, it also has, and this is one of the notes that is um, probably doesn't sound as good, but is uh, coming off to me right now in a good way as a balance against that, which is a little bit of uh, the kind of savory, um, almost rubberiness that um, uh, I find to be welcome against uh, the uh, grapes that have a lot of, of punch in their fruit. Um, what's nice about putting this against the wow, it's great. I hope every I hope everybody has a chance to to pour this stuff next to each other. Um, I feel like I've uh, I've barely been drinking lately but that's ridiculous, <laughs> a lie, <laughs> but I haven't, I haven't done, I haven't drank through um, in a very careful and conscious way over the last couple of weeks as I've been working on my book, so I haven't been into my wine as much, and over the holidays, I was drinking wine for pleasure, which is nice. Um, anyway, um, having these next to each other, I mean, these are, um, it's incredible for so many reasons. One is that they both have a, a, a real depth of flavor. Tannin present, right? I'm feeling everything that I want to feel off of a red wine. If I look at this wine, I'm going to have expectations of it that are different from this one, but they're both delivering exactly what I expect from a red wine. Um, a, a nice tannic backbone, good depth of fruit, acid present that complements the tannin but is, but is uh, sensibly separate from it uh, and then uh, length on the palate that um, makes them stand out against uh, the lighter white wines particularly for example the uh, Preara Bianco that we started with that instead uh, is light bright and fun to start your evening um, particularly Sergio's Rosso is asking for food. Um, uh, the Creara red is a, bringing me back to Katie, what you're talking about before with a, a polpetta uh, veneziana with the nice crunchy fried outside and the uh, fatty meat inside. Uh, this would just be beautiful with that. Mm. Um, people probably still have questions. They should throw them in. Let's just quickly kind of round up the Manuel Pulcini yes. 
pajama? Is it pajama or fool in pajama? Because I feel like there are two wines from this winemaker that have the name pajama in them. John? Also, should we open it up to like people's voices? Uh, yeah, I can definitely do that. I will say that right away, I want to answer that Rick is asking if we can still order the wine. So we're talking about here. Yes, absolutely. This is just our first run. Um, pick them up, uh, drink them while listening to this. We're going to put this uh, on uh, the podcast. The next episode that drops will be us talking right now. So you can listen again. If you'd like to, or don't, you've just heard us talk. So now you can just drink the wine and enjoy. Um, you can order the wines for friends and tell them to listen. Great gift, something that people have been asking us a lot lately. Uh, if they can uh, push people towards Gola in some way and towards the products that we think are worthy of your attention and your time and your palate, um, if you uh, ship people these wines then you can just give them the link to listen to the pod along. It's great. It's great for us. It's great for you and your friends. Um, these wines are also wine that a, that I buy and drink all the time um, in Italy and here now, luckily, thanks to John, who's bringing them in. So um, if you like them, keep buying them, keep ordering them. Uh, we are talking about them, not because we don't get, uh, anything from this other than the pleasure of knowing that our, that the kinds of people who make good wine uh, are being supported and that have really good, uh, practices when it comes to how they support the, how they steward the land, how they support the local economy, how they um, uh, treat the people who work for them, uh, how they work together with uh, the people who buy from them. So uh, if you like wine, if you care about wine at all, and you're enjoying them now, keep buying them, keep buying these bottles, keep supporting these producers, keep coming to us to ask for more because we're here for this. We just want everybody to eat and drink well and to throw their money at things that are worth throwing money at. On that note, you can support Gola at patreon.com backslash GolaPod. Please do, because by the way, patrons are about to start getting more and more special treatment and Non-patrons are going to start being punished for not <laughs> for not adhering. No, um, we are from uh, next month going to be taking off some of our older episodes, which are less polished and uh, a little bit rougher around the edges in general in terms of audio quality so that uh, we can present our best foot forward for all of our newest listeners. Uh, but we know that our old school fans love to go back to our original episodes. So if you are a patron already, you don't have to worry. You'll be uh, automatically given the password to access all of our back episodes. If you're not a patron yet, please join our uh, squad of Golozi at patreon.com backslash Golopod. Katie threw it in the chat. Um, 
by doing that, you'll get a heads up about all of these events in, a, in advance. You'll get discounts to all the things, including buying these wines now and in the future and anything else that we do. And uh, you will have access to not just back episodes, but some of the other special events or live things that we do uh, that we don't make available to the general public. So um, I know that there are also some people who have been supporting us from way back on Anchor. We love you and deeply appreciate that. Uh, we want you to move over to Patreon so that we can give you all of these things and have all of your support managed well. And uh, keep coming to us with your requests, particularly if you're a patron, we, uh, have, you'll have a direct channel to us and we'll be able to talk to you more directly and more comfortably and get your requests and field them and, and respect them whenever we can. So uh, we look forward to having more patrons and to giving you as patrons more cool stuff. Yeah. So any questions for us, comments, concerns? A few more minutes left before Katie's gonna go to sleep and become uh, a superhero in the morning with her trainer. Um, and before I dig further into these wines um, than I should in a public venue. And uh, I will, uh, add one more thing that I meant to mention before, which is that the selection that we have um, not only is a great spread when it comes to representations of uh, styles of wine, so that we have uh, a lot of different grapes that are, um, for example, the Caterato being expressed in two different ways. We have uh, groups that are indigenous to each of the regions, but that are related to each other. We have a nice regional diversity when it comes from Veneto to Tuscany down to uh, Sicily. Um, but they're also put together in a way that's meant to be a progression as we drank them together and that you can enjoy. So speaking of a gift or uh, sharing them with friends or buying up some more, what I love in particular about this six pack is that it's a narrative in itself. So you can start with the lighter bodied white wines, moving through to the white wines with skin contact, to the light bodied reds and into the um, more substantial reds as we drank them together tonight and have a great evening. Don't listen to us when you do that, open them up, drink them, have some food, enjoy people's company virtually or in person as you are able to safely. Um, but what uh, John helped us to put together here is uh, a, a kind of tour of Italy right now in the way that Katie and I are always trying to present it that, uh, that isn't a kind of sad throwback to uh, days of yore and uh, way too much nonsense in a bottle of wine and lots of old men making money off of the work of migrant labor, but instead young people uh, caring about their community, caring about um, expressing the territory that it, it, that expresses them and that they feel attached to and uh, using that to produce wine that's super enjoyable, that can carry you through a whole evening and a nice meal, but that is um, also uh, doing 
all of this so much more than you normally get out of a bottle of wine. You can see I'm doubling down on that right now. <laughs> Beautiful conclusion, Danielle. It's been a delight. Delight is always mine, Katie. Do. I'm gonna do 30 push-ups, not on my knees tomorrow, first thing in the morning. I can't wait Definitely to see how ripped you are. <laughs> and when I see you again. Uh, I'm looking forward to being able to uh, drink together in person, not just me and you, but also with our wonderful friends and Gola family here. Um, we had, as a lot of you know, some live events on deck. We decided to put those on the back burner while we wait for uh, the world to get a little bit safer one more time. Uh, if nothing else, warm weather will pre uh, present us with some of those opportunities. Katie and I will both be in Italy again uh, over the coming months and we'll also be back in the US. So look out for what we're up to. Please do become patrons and join us so that all of our news gets to you. Follow us on Instagram. I'm at Dr. Caligari's Cabinet. And I'm at Katie Parla on all the socials. Katie has many socials and you should follow her on all of them. And uh, please uh, enjoy a glass on us tonight, whatever uh, you're drinking, whether it be these bottles or something else. Uh, it is our pleasure to be drinking with you and we look forward to seeing you all again very soon. Buonanotte. Buonanotte. Ciao. Ciao.